Hello everyone and welcome to Portal to the Paranormal Thriller podcast. I hope everyone's having a great day or great evening wherever you are in the world. Um, as always, thank you for joining us. We have a great guest on tonight and um, just been having a great chat with him in the background there. Um, just a bit of a bio. So we are bringing on Neil Story. He is an award-winning historian and author who specializes in the impact of war on British society in the first half of the 20th century. He has written over 20 books, uh, 40 books now. Um, and he has been a guest historian on factual programs um, like Who Do You Think You Are? Uh, the Buildings That Fought Hitler. And he's also stepped into the paranormal world and been a historian on um, Celebrity My House Is Haunted, Help My um, House Is Haunted, and he's also been on Most Haunted as well. So let's bring on Neil Story. Hey, Neil, how you doing? Hello, Nando, and hello, everybody. Thanks for joining us tonight. Thank you for taking the time out, because I know you've had a bit going on. Um, so, <laughs> you know, um, thank you for taking the time to uh, come on. Just want to That's give a, a few shout outs. Um, so we got Matt Barron, Paranormal Consultant. Thank you for joining. Uh, we have uh, Kim. Kim Norman. Hey, you guys. Hey, a couple of kisses there. Bless her. Um, so, yeah. So as always, guys, we want you guys to get involved. So if you have any questions throughout the show for Neil, um, please chuck them in the comments and we will get them asked. Um, but I'm going to kick this off, um, Neil. You, you've, you know, with what I've researched, you have grown up in a rich history of, um, you know, in your family with his history. Um, growing up, you know, your grandfather, I know he was born in 1909. He saw the First World War and then he saw he served in the Second World War. Um, but you've mentioned about how stories were told. Can you give us a bit of a background about how this all got started yeah. for you? When I think about it now, my granddad was an Edwardian. It's, it's weird to think that link, isn't it? His parents were Victorians. But if we all think about it, if you're that kind of magical age, if you're born in the 70s, it's common to a lot of us, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, I grew up in Norfolk, and Norfolk is a, it always was an agricultural county. Lots of good working people, a history of uh, agricultural unions, banding together, working together. To, to get through some pretty tough times, but also some great times, some festivals, some music, the language, the culture, the, 
it's a wonderful county uh, and and I had a, a wonderful childhood thanks to I grew up a lot with my grandparents and their friends uh, granny had uh, there were when there were six or seven brothers and sisters still alive at that time granddad had quite a lot of sisters as well uh, so yeah they were from a, an older generation but they kind of give you that old-fashioned values uh, which I don't think are a bad thing uh, and the stories that would be told uh, it, it was just just reminisce. they had a lot of time to reminisce they were pretty much retired when I knew a lot of my my grandparents and their family and they would talk of working with horses working on the land um, and progressions you know when after the war when there wasn't a lot of work around my granddad came home and, and he swept the roads for a little while and yeah. that's what you did and then the snows came down in 1947 and uh, they needed and these were deep deep snows across east anglia and i think a lot of uh, across great britain and lots of people remember my dear old granddad and his team of workmen clearing oh i remember your granddad cleared my mother's front drive and that gets shopping for the locals you know they remembered that but what they forget is that granddad's work team were a lot of german ex-prisoners of war and if they worked in britain they could earn the right to stay here and why did they put my granddad in charge of them well my granddad had fought in the far east so they said well george you've got no gripe with the germans <laughs> They'll <laughs> put you in charge of them. He was a country man, and you know, uh, you found that no matter what color people tend to be in East Anglia, it's just who you are that matters. If you're a good person, that doesn't really matter what your color is or where you're from. If you will work hard and must mess in with everybody else and be a good person, just be decent. You know, yeah. in those days, a lot smoke share your fags boy share what you got and and i know that might people say well that's rosy tinted spectacles well that might be a little bit of the nostalgia that i heard but the point is if people didn't get on during wartime and afterwards well what a blooming awful state we would all be in if exactly. if people just didn't rub along and get along nicely you know in the main, most people just want a quiet life, don't you? And have a few yeah. laughs along the way, a few beers, you know, Definitely. it's all right. Just enjoy <laughs> the time that we have here and not right. worry about all the um, the aggro, you know, just leave That's it right. as it is. Um, and, so and what you'd, if you're having a beer or you're sharing a cup of tea, or it's always good to have a story to tell. And they don't want to hear the same one all the time. So there were some stories were tall, some stories were, you know, things they could remember. Other stories might be a little bit ghostly. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely step into that uh, as well. You know, so growing up, you know, you come from a lot of history. Um, what, what was your start in being a historian? Do you remember what the kind of first things that you started researching and what you started doing first? Yeah. What I did when, when you're at school, if you've got good history teachers, they'll get you to talk to your grandparents and relatives. You know, they might do a project on the town in the past. They might do a project on World War One, because when I was a boy, there were still quite a lot of First World War veterans still around uh, or World War Two. You know, and go and talk to them and, and research this. And it really opened a door for me that I thought, well, these guys 
and and ladies too lasses uh they're brilliant story even if they're kids and they are or, or grown-ups in there in the military if they're in, on the home front doing their bit they're often just shrug oh i just did it i i just you know i just drove ambulances in the blitz in world war ii but for them it was their generation they often didn't see there was anything special in it at all because everybody else to them was doing the same thing to help mm. out but i thought these are brilliant stories uh the, the, those that had served in in both world wars that you know they'd say or oh, only the heroes got the medals if you say well you you were a hero for what you did no no i just helped my mates i did my bit and that was it but these stories are extraordinary and you know you put yourself into their, their shoes for example my granny was an ambulance driver in world war ii in norfolk and you might think norfolk's really quiet we're well, surrounded by air bases crashes you know the liberator bombers that are coming down and she was part of an ambulance crew that would have to go and out go out and attend they were sometimes first on the scene and it was horrific what she saw and it and she was f about 15 miles from norwich in a town called north walsham and if you saw the city glowing and norwich was bombed several times in world war ii if you saw the city glowing you knew it wouldn't be long before the phone would jangle and you'd be you'd be off on the ambulance and you wouldn't be sitting at home thinking, God, thank God I'm not in that. You'd be driving towards the fire. And I just think for a young woman on her own, you know, granddad's away at war. She's got a brother missing in action. She's got other brother, brothers doing their bit too. That that was a hell of a thing to do, to drive towards the, those fires and do your bit. And, you know, for those on the home front, for those in the military services, there really wasn't any any counselling for them. The phrase was very much pull yourself together. But the legacies that I saw in a lot of these veterans, their, their feelings, uh, their emotions were just as raw sometimes, which is why they often wouldn't talk about it. They boxed it away. Yeah. They'd want to tell it once. So if they're going to tell it once, they'd often tell it to me. And wow. I consider that not just history, that's a privilege. And with, with the books relating to the war that you've written, do you get a lot of your inspiration from those people that you've spoken to? Is there an element that you sort of relay what they've gone through in your books to keep yes. that part of their yes. history alive as well? Absolutely right. The interviews that took place, they're, they're verbatim or and they're reproduced in the books or... The stories that they told me are developed in the books to show a bigger picture. So I'll be inspired to think of some of the lesser known instances. You tell a big story, yeah. but illustrate it with the experiences of those whose voices you don't normally hear. So you can get the general history in many, many books, but I want to tell the story of ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And that to me is history because it's personal and also digging around in the archives to see uh, memoirs and, and, and people that some really good interviews given at the time of World War II after air raids um, or, the, or the men that were writing back home, their letters would often be reproduced in the press. And you think, yeah, that, that's pretty good. 
that's pretty authentic. That's that's fresh. It's not a memory from years ago. So it's a real blend of because often with the passage of time, and it can happen to all of us, memories blur and they get amalgamated. So I want to get the original story and the timeline, get that right, and then get the stories to illustrate it right from those who were actually there that I interviewed and find photographs to help tell those stories because some people say oh no they never wore that in their uniform this didn't happen in this town well well yes it was bombed it was bombed on this date and here is a photograph of the high street with all the glass blown out oh, bomb God. damage you know <laughs> you know it's it's such a great you know to be able to actually speak to people that have actually been part of it because you know you're getting the true history from you know from them yeah. which you know you can relay back in your book and in a way your books are keeping that history going um you you were saying in the background we're so. touching it but that the way you want to bring the history forward you don't want to be you know the the boring power you know you 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 you've got a real passion and it comes through really well how how do you get people to you know how do you captivate your audience shall i say you know because you want to bring fun to it how, how do you, when you're doing your speaks and things like that, what do you bring and how do you do your storytelling? Well, I look at it this way. Number one, be yourself. Don't be a character, be you. And if you've got it in you to stand in front of people and tell a story, for God's sake, make it interesting. <laughs> make it a good one, you know? And, and don't be afraid that if something in some of the worst situations you could ever possibly imagine, there will be humor found. Because if you think of the infantrymen in combat in World War II, sometimes the dry humor that those guys had, you've got to find something, even in the worst, worst situations. Otherwise, you will go bonkers, you know, <laughs> and the dry wit of, of, of everybody that's been in extreme situations it, it, it is extraordinary. And I don't mean that in a patronising way. It is extraordinary. It's extreme. It's often really funny. It's very poignant. So funny it will make you cry. But it's funny. Yeah. And it, it gets you through. So I think if you time it, tell the story straight. Tell them as, if, if somebody's told you a story, you've interviewed them, and you've laughed. You've enjoyed the way they've told that story. Then try and recapture that in the way you tell it. You know, if it's got, you know, deliver it the same way. You don't need to jazz it up or mess around too much with it. Tell it straight. You don't need to embroider it because these stories are so good. Uh, mm. Just tell it. Just tell it the way they told it. Always mm. name it. You know, when I tell a story if it's by a certain person i mean i knew richard davis he was the cox and the chroma lifeboat tell me some great stories some lovely ghost stories as well i'll always say this was told to me by and i'll say richard davis there'll be people in the audience that knew him and you tell it the way he told it and they'll recognize it and that's lovely and even if you don't know that person they will enjoy the storytelling and so if you've been doing that a lot of years, uh, I don't, I, I'd, I'd hate to bore people. I hope to bring it alive, make it interesting, but you don't need to embroider it. Just tell it straight so that whatever you've got, somebody said, Neil, I don't believe that. Well, it's in this book. It's in this newspaper article. 
and this person remembers it. They are your verbal footnotes. Here is your photograph. Tell the truth. Tell it straight. You know, uh, and if you've got the chance, don't you don't never force humor. Never force it. It'll come. And Just it'll then be there. In, in fact, enjoy it. Do you know, if you're giving a talk to a public audience, I mean, if I'm even if you if I'm speaking for an academic audience, I've got to teach some students that, you know, they're at university that you can, you know, they it's a Monday morning. They've had a few drinks over the weekend and you're going to have to defibrillate them. And you can either look a really tragic git trying to tell a funny story or you can tell something that will actually wake them up and make them laugh. And so see where it goes. Because I tell you what, if you've got if you're just droning on students or any no one's going to listen they're not going to enjoy it they're not going to engage with it try and capture that imagination fire them up fire them up to want to come and do that research and produce the essays that gives them the, the, the best grades or people say to me i've been to your talk i'm going to be looking up this up on the internet there you go that's great that's job done you're taking something away people go away one of my do you know one of the greatest feelings i came out from a talk not so long ago and I was hearing people buzzing. They were talking about what they'd heard, the memories that, that that had brought back to them. That's job done. That's the job done. Get people thinking, you know? That's what Brilliant. that Brilliant. Um, just a minute. So we've got uh, Jenny um, Sanyasi from Ireland. Uh, hello, Jenny. She says hello. Um, Sarah's just popped a little message in there saying, fantastic answer, brilliant. I get lost in your imagination now. So bless your heart, Sarah. Thank you very much. Um, brilliant. And Kim, what doesn't he bring? He is amazing. He draws you in and keeps you in. Aww. He is warm, friendly, and entertaining. So Kim is such a kind soul as well in this world. You're a beautiful person, Kim. Love you lots, Colin. So as I mentioned earlier on, you've written or you've been an author of over 40 books now. Um, some of them I've got um i've taken a picture of some of the books that you've done um that's just, Ooh, a few, uh, <laughs> just a few of your books now you know you've written about you know the history is a big part of it but i don't know if you would answer this but is there a particular book that you've done that stands out to be your favorite and why oh that's a naughty one that Officially, as a, as a historian, the book that I'm most proud of as a historian is the history of my great grandfather's battalion in World War One. It's called the King's Men, and it's the story of the men of the the fifth of the Norfolk Territorial Battalions in World War One, which includes the fifth battalion that included the King's Company, which known as the King's Company, the Sandringhams, and there's this ledge to it that they disappeared in Gallipoli. In a, in a cloud and it's 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 one of those frustrating stories that just won't go away uh and i thought let, let's tell it straight let's t they didn't all disappear if they had my great granddad would have gone with them you know boom <laughs> it was a it was a terrible action in august 1915 and an awful lot of men lost their lives and a lot of men were wounded as well so the the battalion was it wasn't wiped out but it was badly knocked around and a lot lot of men didn't come home or they're badly injured so that meant an awful lot to me and i know as a norfolk man i know so many of those families because 
in World War One. This is on my granny's side. Granddad yeah. Griffin, he was fifth Norfolk's. In World War Two, my great uncle, my granny's brother Oswald, was in the fifth battalion again, and they went to Singapore, and he he was posted missing. They never knew exactly what happened to him until I did some research. It's believed he. Well, we know he went to Alexandra Hospital, but a lot of men were, were, were killed in the hospital there in a terrible, terrible action in 1942. Uh, so the 5th Battalion means a lot to me. Uh, I knew a lot of Far Eastern prisoners of war. Uh, they were lovely old boys. So I, I wrote a book on the territorials, uh, the 5th Norfolk. It means a lot, an awful lot to me. So that's... As a historian, that's probably one of the ones I'm most proud of. Uh, my my books on espionage, the recent ones, release uh, telling the stories of uh, spies, saboteurs, collaborators in Britain. That's new because the records are very, very new. That I'm very proud of because it's absolutely groundbreaking. But, but, personally, what what really really motivates me what what's i absolutely adore the man the works the time period of bram stoker i know that's a, that, that's one that's very close to your heart that one and oh. we're going to touch on that because that's one of your newest books as well isn't it um bram stoker the author of dracula that's you know, coming out very soon. That'll be later this year. So you, you're a hot off the press, man. Uh, you know, I, that's, I know, that's not I know hit not the shelves sure. yet. <laughs> um, but, you know, are we allowed to touch into that a little bit? Of course. About, of yeah? course you can. Um, you know, you, you've done a lot of research based on this book. Um, you know, I know that you did, you know, you even went to Whitby uh, with Ooh. Dave Schreiner. Um, you know, tell us a little bit about the book and, you know, how that got started for you and what got you so passionate about Brand Stroker? What, what's an interesting thing is that now I, I was born in 1972. I'm 51 this year. And uh, when you, when you start growing up, you become a conscious of a few things. One of the things that's been in my mind for just about as long as I can remember is Dracula. Because when I was a kid at school, there, and I was at primary school, and I walked past cinemas, and there'd be posters for Hammer Horror Films. And I'll tell you what, I'll clean this up, because this is, for family audiences, they really scared me. And you grown-ups know what I wanted to say there. <laughs> <laughs> they really scared me when I was a kid. And I, even if I'd wanted, I dare, I wouldn't dare. Go and see a hammer horror with Dracula, taste the blood of Dracula, Dr Dracula, Prince of Darkness, all this kind of stuff. Wouldn't dare go, even if I, if I would dare. I wasn't old enough because in those days it was X certificate. There's no way you'd get in. But if I walked into my local newsagents, I could buy some Topps bubblegum cart for about, I don't know, three or four P. And then get this stick of very dry, powdery bubblegum that's blooming awful. And you get three, three, they're like little bubblegum cards, uh, not yeah. maybe on cardboard, 
lurid pictures of blood-soaked scenes from the film Dracula AD 1972, which is the year I was born, and other, you know, Frankenstein and all sorts of other ones from Hammer. But these and these pictures were so frightening. I had to, I frightened myself. I was getting nightmares. I had to give them to my mum. So I've known Drac all my life. And when you get a bit older, you get braver. So when they started mm. showing them on TV, the Hammer Horrors, when I was, you know, about 10, 11, 12 years old, oh, I'd be allowed. If it wasn't a school night, you could stay up and watch it. And, of course, they knew it's on at 10 o'clock. And they knew that I wouldn't get through five blooming minutes. I wouldn't get you get the titles going on, start seeing the man, the Christopher Lee, I'm gone. And the ironic thing is that now, all these years, I've got I've got a bit of nostalgia going on. So I've bought my tops bubblegum cards. Great. I can be a big boy. I can cope with those now. Got my hammer mm. annuals, scream magazine again. Feeling good. So I've got granddaughters now, so I thought, what about my 10-year-old granddaughter? What does little Ivy think of these cards? So I had a word with, with my boy, my, with my son. I didn't want to traumatise her. I said, can I show it? Yeah, of course you can, Dad. What do you reckon of these, Ivy? Have a look at the cards. We showed them to friends, and they've got daughters. One's eight and one's 11. And we were all a bit worried, you know, have we done the right thing? But Kids just looked at me thought, it's just a funny man in a funny outfit. It's just, mm. it's just not, it's nothing. These are kids. I was absolutely scared witless. It's nothing to them now. It, it's mm. absolutely to Lord. I mean, you know, we all protect and love our children. Lord knows how they see or whatever it is, but it's a, I'm going to sound a right granddad now. It's a different world, man, though. It is. It is. It's a very different world. You know, we, we say that um, a lot when with the paranormal. Back in the day, a lot of people didn't really talk about it, but now they do. Um, but yeah, so so you've shown your granddaughters the Dracula cards. And where did it lead on from there? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, that was just in, it was all part of the, this research for, for the book. Years ago, about 2012, uh, that would be uh anniversary the 100th anniversary of bram stoker's death and i i really wanted to bring something new to the table mm. a few years before that about the ooh, early 2000s i'd realized thanks to my dear friend stuart p evans who had discovered a letter stuart p evans had found a letter which named a new suspect for jack the ripper and Stuart, there was a wonderful channel for uh, documentary presented by David Jessel that explored this new suspect. The suspect was named by uh, Chief Superintendent uh, Littlechild of, of the special branch. So this was a, an unknown suspect, but a very, very good person to, you know, point the finger. He was the only one to have been Littlechild to be in position before during and after the Ripper crimes. So he, he's the and special branch, you know, that's nation security stuff. You don't mess around with those fellas. So to name that suspect, to see the documentary. And in the documentary, they had a lady called Vivian Allen 
talking about Tumblety having a, a, a relationship, probably a gay relationship, with Thomas Henry Hall Kane. Now, that was when Hall Kane was on his way up as an author. Now, most people will, will probably not have heard of Hall Kane, but he was the first man to sell a million books in the English language. In the Victorian age, Hall Kane was the man. Every house would have had a book on the shelf, but his books, they haven't translated with time for modern audiences. They're often quite Christian. They're, they're kind of uh, chocolate boxy love triangles, really. So most literary circles have never heard of Hall Kane. But I knew that Hall Kane was a really good friend of Bram Stoker. So in, in the early 2000s, the Hall Kane archive had not been released. They were still it, it, it was still being catalogued. I had to wait about 10 years. So it had been about 2010, 2011. And I'd regularly contacted uh, the curator, the Iron Man archives, where, where they said, how are you getting on? And I got to know uh, Wendy Thurkettle quite well. And she said, Neil, we're down to the last box. I said, well, I've got my book coming up. I need to get on. She, she said, come on over. And we went through the last box together. The last box of correspondence. And in total, I mean, they, they were over, over 40 letters between Francis Tumblety to Hall Kane. And when I published it, I, I transcribed all of these letters. It is the greatest concentration, a uh, greatest collection of letters from any contemporary Jack the Ripper suspect ever to be published. But then, of course, when I was going through that archive, I found all these Bram Stoker letters. Absolutely incredible. 40, 50, 60, more of them. So I thought one day that will be another book. And so in the 10 years since Dracula Secrets, which looked at the connection with Dracula and the Jack the Ripper crimes and the inspirations for Bram Stoker, I've developed this biography and I've got quite a nice collection of original letters and first editions of Bram. The Bram Stoker estate, Dacre Stoker, has always been absolutely wonderful and very, very helpful. The Stoker historians that I, I knew along the way, we've lost a few of them now, very, very sadly. People like Robert 18 Bysang, uh, Richard Dolby, Leslie Shepherd over in Ireland. Sadly, they've gone. So in, in many ways, the book I was hoping to write with these guys, the torch kind of fell to me so that it's quite a heavy weight on my shoulder, shoulders to, to produce this book. But it, I hope. My new biography of Bram, Bram Stoker will bring a lot to the table, a lot, a lot of new material, things people will have not seen before, pictures people haven't seen before, and stories of, of the man. So I, I hope it's just a great enjoyment of the life of Bram and a way to show, look, this is why he's not just Dracula. There's things like Lair of the White Worm, Jewel of the Seven Stars, which is one of the first ever reanimated mummy stories. He was good he was a good writer but yeah he nailed it with dracula <laughs> yeah. and you know on the theme with uh the dracula um so it's just put dracula just rolls off the tongue how did how did bran stoker uh think of the name and how did the uh connection of 
Vlad the Impaler, is that right? The Blood Prince come to play in the book on Whitby influence. Yeah, well, thank you, Sarah, for, the, for that. That's a great question. What happened was Bram Stoker, uh, George, his friend, George de Maurier. Now, George de Maurier, was, he, he was a good artist, good writer, playwright. He was the man that created a play called Trilby. Now, Trilby is about this young girl off the streets, really, that falls under the spell of a mesmerist. And the trouble was this pretty young girl, he could make her a great singer, but he would have his wicked way with her. Uh, he had power over the mind. He did that. And that fascinated Bram. And that's why you see in the, in the Dracula story, this and other stories by Bram, the power of the mind. So de Maurier was a, was a pal of Bram's. And he was like, having a little break up in Whitby. And, and he'd suggested, why don't you come up to Whitby with your family too? And so Bram went ahead of his family. Uh, they were staying in the Royal Crescent. And he's just on his own. And I suspect, although I haven't found the letter to prove it, but I suspect he meant Molly to have a yarn with him and have a few drinks. And yeah. But when, what we know for sure is that Bram stood on the West Cliff, looking across to the east, and he was wrote the most wonderful eulogiac view of the, the river Esk in his diary, which becomes the voice of Mina Harker in his book. It absolutely inspired him. But I like to think it was rather a wet day one day and when Bram was in, in there. And Bram had he'd had this idea for a book on a vampire of sorts for many, many years. He'd loved uh, Through a Glass Darkly, which is Sheridan Lefanu, uh, who was uh, actually he went to the same university as Bram a few years before, Trinity in Dublin. And Sheridan Lefano actually created the first ever lesbian vampire story. She's Camilla. And Bram's first draft, which we think that we think it was later published under the name Dracula's Guest, it was actually set in Styria. And it, you can see the influences quite clearly of Lefano. But also, you'll see in the book Dracula. He refers to his friend Arminius, Arminius Vanbury, who was the, the lecturer in foreign languages, myths and legends at Budapest University. And we know that Vanbury and Stoker had met in London because Bram Stoker was the manager of the Lyceum Theatre, the acting manager, when Sir Henry Irving, the greatest actor of his day, owned it. And they talked, and clearly, Bram had developed some ideas and he liked Bram loved language and he loved the idea of writing this book about a vampire. Now he spelt it with a W, W A M P I R, in, on, in continental Europe, the Germanic countries in the, in the Austro Hungarian Empire. That would most certainly have been the W's are pronounced with a V. So it's not vampire, it's vampire. Oh, Bram loved that. So he had this idea of producing a story. It was called The Undead. And the main character was Kant Vampire. It's all right. 
And on this wet day, I like to imagine, Bram goes to a, the, the lending library, library on the quayside, and he's having a look through the books, and he finds a copy of Wilkinson's Guide to Wallachia, quite an old book produced in the early 19th century. And in it, we know from his notes, a mercenary whose name was Dracula. Oh, 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 oh everything just now. If you actually try this at home, you can roll the name Dracula around the mouth. It's very satisfying, isn't it? Makes the tongue feel good, like sucking a boiled sweet. If you like boiled sweets, that is. But you're rolling it around. It feels good. It feels kind of sinister, kind of dark. As he regular, not bad. Vampire. But then Bram clearly loves it so much. Just a month before publication, the and the undead is gone. And the title, now remember, this is quite a gamble because people don't know what Dracula is, who he is, you know. So it's a gamble, but it's such a powerful name. It clearly worked for Bram and it's worked for everybody ever since. That's how it gets its name. But people have wanted to find the origins of Dracula. So they look for the, this son of the dragon and they find all of that, which is quite right. Vlad Tepes, Vlad the Impaler. You'll see all of this information. But Bram, ladies and gentlemen, Bram didn't know any of that. There is no mention in any of Dracula's correspondence, in any of his notes for Dracula. And they're pretty darn good. You can go through the whole lot. They're all there. They've been published. There is no mention of Vlad Tepes. In fact, Bram never, ever went to Transylvania. I know, I know Transylvanian tourist authority will not like me for it, but folks, <laughs> that's the truth. That's the truth. He never, ever went there. There's no Vlad Tepes in the, in, in the story. And in fact, in the Wil Wilkinson's Guide to Wallachia, Dracula doesn't come off very well. He looks like a bit of a naff mercenary, not the great warrior that, that, that Vlad Tepes, this dangerous warrior, this national hero. Uh, no, it's just a name. For Bram, it works. It just mm. works. What a name it is. And, you know, with Bram Stoker, you've done a lot of research on him. What... How did he become who he was? What was his background? Um, I take it you've done research on him as a person. Because um, I'm already. I have say... traced his. Go on, you go first. Go. Well, I was just going to say, I've traced his family line. Bram's. He is an Irishman at heart. He was born in the 1840s and he was educated entirely in, in, in Ireland. He and his parents and the lineage of his mother's family are old, 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 old Ireland, going back generations upon generations. Some of the oldest names in Ireland are associated with his mother's family. But the Stokers themselves, they've only been Ireland in Ireland since the, the army of King William of Orange when he went over there in the late 17th century. 
and you'll, you'll find the Stokers at that time were soldiers, and they were for several generations. Before they were in the army, generations went back in Northumberland, not far from me, right here, right now. I've traced them back to the town of Morpeth, and that's where, that's where the Stoker ancestors were, and there are Stoker descendants still in Morpeth to this day. Wow. Brilliant. So that's, and... that's his deepest origins. But I dare say Bram Stoker himself, quite rightly, would identify himself as an Irishman, and a big, strong Irishman who couldn't. But as a kid, he couldn't walk until he was seven years old. He was a very ill young man. And every time the nursery bell rang, uh, his mother, because the, the, the nurse would ring it, he worried the mother would his mother would think he was going to die or something. I mean, they weren't mega rich. A lot of middle-class families had a servant in those days, particularly if you had a sickly child. And they were quite a big family, the Stokers. So they had Ellen Crone, who was the beloved family nurse, to look after the kids. And Bram's dad was a civil servant at, at Dublin Castle. And his mum, from this feisty line of Irish uh, history, uh, she was she was very much a, a woman's rights uh, and rights for everybody, treating everybody like human rights. Uh, as a, an early women's speaker, and and she would write on that too. So it, he comes from quite a, a wonderful mixed background, but very Irish. Wonderful. Yeah, very. <laughs> um, and with, with um, I just wanted to point out um, Anne. She just wanted to say um, hello Anne. and watching. But it's lunchtime where she's in. She's in South Carolina, uh, California, sorry. Um, you guys have a wonderful night. Thank you, Anne, for oh, watching. thank you very and much. Thank you for your comment. Um, you know, so with the brand Stoker, I know that there's ties with Whitby in um, in, England, in the UK, just for people watching overseas. And every year they do, like, the... Like, they all dress up as vampires. We got the opportunity. We didn't know what was going on, but we actually happened to go to Whitby when they were all dressed up as vampires and you know it's great how did the story get to Whitby then because I know a lot of people oh, talk yes. about um Brand Stoker and they have like these big gatherings up on the oh, I can't remember the name of the castle now Whitby Abbey Whitby Abbey uh, Sarah kill yeah, me for that because she goes on about it all the time um, <laughs> but how did the story you know an Irishman yeah. from what he created of Dracula you know how did it get yeah. to Whitby? Because I know you recently went to Whitby a little while ago, didn't you? Oh, I've been several times over the years. But what happened, Bram grew up in Ireland. He worked in the civil service, followed his dad's footsteps. But he met Henry Irving when he was on tour, Henry Irving, the great actor. When Irving took on the license for the Lyceum Theatre in London, because Bram not only was a civil servant, civil servants didn't earn an awful lot of money to enable him to go to the theatre all the time. He was a bit of a theatre critic too. Bram also didn't like the, the way the papers wrote up a lot of the reviews for the plays. He So he volunteered to do it free. He'd be a theatre critic, so he got free tickets in exchange for writing up reviews. And one of the actors that really moved him was Henry Irving, probably the, the, the actor that really, really touched Bram. And so Bram wrote him brilliant reviews. And when Irving set up his 
theatre in London. He knew that Bram was very savvy with his figures, very good with his book work, very dedicated, very loyal and a great admirer of Henry Irving. So Irving brought him over. Bram got married just before he came to and he became the acting manager of the Lyceum Theatre in London. So it was on the holiday in Whitby on the advice of George de Maurier. That was Bram's first visit to the place and he loved it. So when he came to write Dracula, he drew on a number of the notes he had taken. Bram uh, spoke to locals. He, he also explored the graveyard of St. Mary's. Of course, he visited Whitby Abbey. He described it very eloquently, but some of the locals told the story of a shipwreck, a particularly notable one, because it came on the sands very close to Whitby. And it was a ship called the Dimitri. And on some of the Frank Meadows Sutcliffe photographs, you can actually see the wreck of the Dimitri still on the beach. Yeah. Bram took the story of this shipwreck, turned it around a bit. So the, the ship became known as the Demeter. And the Demeter is the ship that carries Dracula and his boxes of common earth to Great Britain. And it, the ship, all the crew are horribly murdered. They were, and the ship gets washed up and a great black dog bounds ashore. Well, that's Count Dracula in dog form but they managed to get the the boxes of common earth off the ship and this is all set in whitby uh there were also the, the count manifests in saint mary's churchyard it's where when uh mina is one side of the river on the west cliff it, she can see lucy her friend being at uh, in the clutches of the count and his red eyes and so she has to dash from one from the west cliff over to the east this mad dash and up the steep steps to st mary's if you've ever been up there so these are all the places that bram would have known and, yeah. and he probably would have traveled that journey because he, although he'd been a very ill young man he was quite a fit man into his later life was our bram very good yeah. uh, runner athletics gymnasium swimmer he rescued a man from the thames when he was oh, wow. uh, manager at the lyceum and that's no mean feat because the currents of the thames are pretty serious so bram would have probably rehearsed that journey from the cliff over to the other and belting up those steps to for mina to rescue lucy from the clutches of dracula so bram knew the places he he went around the churchyard and he annotated an awful lot of the gravestones and he used some of the names in his books, not just Dracula, but other books. He found a name he liked or an inscription that intrigued him. He'd note it down and use it later. So Whitby was a great influence for Bram Stoker. He incorporated it in his story and he absolutely loved the place. And between London, Whitby, and a place called Port Errol, which is now known as Cruden Bay, that, that's up in Scotland. They are the three real main influences for where he uh, created uh, the Dracula story. Brilliant. And just to, um, the book isn't out yet, but it's coming out later this year, isn't later it? Later this year. Later Do this you year. know when it is or is that still 
Not yeah. quite. It will be out ready for Christmas. I think it will be around about September. Absolutely. And people can find it, I take it, like on um, Google, um, Amazon? Would it be Amazon? Any good, any good internet bookshop. Uh, there is Amazon, but there are others, places like Blackwell's. Or if you get in touch with my publishers, Pen and Sword Books, the White Owl imprint of Pen and Sword, they're producing the uh, biography that I've created. Uh, it's simply called Bram Stoker, author of Dracula. You won't miss it. There'll be plenty of publicity when it comes out too. But yeah, any, any good bookshop, if you get the chance, if you if you can. Do try and order it through a book, a real bookshop. I dare you. Go and find one. <laughs> go and, and find and one. Go to a real bookshop and go and see what else is on the shelves. Because we can't know everything, you know, but what you see on the internet, browse those shelves and keep bookshops alive, please. Brilliant. Uh Jenny's just said, definitely looking forward to it. So that's thank you, Jenny. Thank um you. and and did say uh vampires are cool. So, they're certainly brilliant. cool they are the undead <laughs> and sarah says vampires are sexy and cool i don't know about the sexy well, part i'll grow but... my teeth for you darling i really will watch <laughs> your neck a festival of the unexplained sarah that's all i can say oh, brilliant <laughs> um uh let's have a look um hi anthony um from rath world and isabello thanks for joining um so going on um so kim's put a question in how do you keep focused on each book as you know, I'm writing one, but I keep writing chapters for other book ideas I have. Is it a case of st uh, storing them for another time or scrapping the one I'm writing? So what is your advice to Kim? Okay, yeah. Kim, especially for you, never, ever scrap something you've written. Particularly nowadays, we don't lose notebooks so easily. We can keep it all on the net, although on on our computers. But for goodness' sake, get a good external drive, right? In case <laughs> one day we have the one, the modern wonder that is the blue screen of doom, right? And just regularly back it up. And it doesn't matter, even if you think it's absolute rubbish, make a file for it and just put it in there. Because one day, the, even if the, the text doesn't work, the ideas that are in it or where those ideas take your mind, your thought process, they're all there. And it's far more difficult to re recapture that than if you've destroyed it, if you've just zapped it. So, yeah, just, just keep it. They are done. That's a pleasure. Keep those files. And do you know what? I've been collecting stuff for and it used to be on hard copy files for all of my life <laughs> as long as i can remember and they became books for even if i could think how can i ever put stories of ufos ghosts vampires horrible murders crimes and punishments but then i thought well the victorians used to create almanacs uh, and I thought of, of strange events and the years. I thought, well, why don't I create a grim almanac of Norfolk, my home county? And because people at my talks have always loved the darker stories, what they eloquently call the twiddly bits. The bits, the little <laughs> thing you can take away and throw into a conversation. Did you know? Just a little, <laughs> little quickie. And I thought, do you know, I can find one of those attached to every single day of the year, just about. 
without having to knock knock a square peg into a round hole. So I created Grim Almanac Norfolk. And my publishers, I write for several different ones. This was History Press. And my editor said, oh, I really love that. Uh, could you do some more? I said, oh, yes, I can do Norfolk, Suffolk, Essex, Lincolnshire. I'd love to do all of East Anglia. And, of course, I mm. want to do Jack the Ripper's London. I said, that's great. I said, we, they said, we could make a series of this. I said, that's right. I'll sell you the rights. And do you know what? They said, oh, yes, put us in touch with your agent. <laughs> I didn't have an agent at the time. So, <laughs> so just and so all of those things, all of the things I'd never use, all of those stories, all of those lists of executions and the little twiddly bits that were all in those files came together to produce Grim Almanacs. Wow. And then I suddenly found that once I've done East Anglia, there are experts all over Great Britain that have done exactly the same as me, except for their own counties. So it was the first ever series of books. This was in the 1990s and early 2000s that charts the dark history of Britain by county. So, I'm, I, And they, they got all sorts of awards, and I was really chuffed with that. Uh, in fact, that was my first ever book award, was actually from Cambridgeshire, from my Grim Almanac yeah. of Cambridgeshire. And I'm eternally grateful for everybody that voted for the book there. That meant so much to me, and it's something I treasure. Now, the point is, never throw anything away. Put it in your files, but back them up so you never lose them that's Brilliant. the idea um jenny's just asked a quick question we're going back to brand stoker quickly our brand stokers quickly a uh, quick question how did they come up with the garlic repels vampires ah well it's very interesting that there's a, a folklore of vampires one of the greatest influences for bram stoker was a female explorer her name was Emily Gerard, and she did the real de deal. She went through darkest Transylvania, and she wrote an art an article, and it was from one of the popular magazines of, of its day called the 19th Century. Mostly it was a sort of gentleman's uh, literary and, and knowledge magazine, you know, those who are well-read and sort of scientific, you know. <laughs> but Emily Gerard is in there, and there were other ladies too. But she was a bit of a groundbreaker. And in Transylvanian superstitions, Bram really liked that. He had a copy of that. That's well marked in his notes. But it also in inspired him to think and, and sort of morph other traditions. So you have the ancient true traditions. For example, here's a good one. Nosferatu. Now, everybody thinks that Nosferatu is another word for a vampire, but it actually is a, it translates as a creature of the night. So this is not just the vampire, this is the werewolf, the night walker, the stalker, the creatures of the night. So he adapted some of his, uh, the folk tales and the legends accordingly. In the European folklore, the, the, particularly the garlic flower and the garlic clove under the tongue 
repels the vampire. It's very strong smelling, isn't it? If you, I mean, I mm. love garlic. I'll never get pissed yeah. by a vampire. But <laughs> if you don't like it, you can smell it 10 foot away. Uh, <laughs> so it's a strong smell. It is can, can be described as repellent. And so strong smells in, in even in English tradition, for example, uh, if you wanted to dispel the miasma of illness, you would burn herbs in the past to purify the air. That's what they thought that would, you know, it would get into the rafters and get rid of the cholera that's lurking around there. So in that kind of spirit of pungent, clean smells, sweet smells or powerful smells, dispelling that's where the the garlic clove and the garlic flowers comes from so it's a little bit of gerard it's a little bit of folk tradition and quite a lot of brown i love it that's brilliant the way you've just explained it as well is absolutely brilliant um so you know we've talked about a lot of the history stuff that you've done but you've also um you know taken a step into the paranormal world you know, you, you've um, been a guest historian on Help My House is Haunted and Celebrity Help My House is Haunted. Um, and you've also been on Most Haunted. How did that come about? And what was your take when they first approached you about it? Like from going from history and then into the paranormal, you know, what was your sort of yeah. take at first? Well, I've, growing up as I did in a rural county, you're actually surrounded by superstition, folklore and legends of ghosts. In fact, if you didn't have some interest or knowledge of, of folk legends and stories, having grown up in the countryside, I think that was odd rather than being, an, you know, something that very few people enjoyed. So I've always been interested. I've always, I've always loved thrills and chills. A ghost story that doesn't give you nightmares, but just gives you a little shiver, you know, <laughs> like the tales of Jack the Ripper or anything else. That little shiver, yeah. not terror although Jack was terrifying in his day. So with that kind of spirit, it's always been with me. I've always learned, I mean, I've been investigating paranormal phenomena since the late 1980s. When were you born, Nando? 85. <laughs> you were four years old when I staged my first ever formal ghost hunt. You were four. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was at college and it wasn't anything too great, I have to say, is the equipment was very out of date. Well, it was the latest thing in my day, but by modern yeah, comparison. So I've always had an interest. I've, I loved books by people like Peter Haney. I used to enjoy when I was a kid, but I, above all, it was the Usborne Book of Ghosts, a little bit of Harry Price, uh, Wentworth Day, or, or the... It was just magical for me. It's always been a not a guilty pleasure. It has been a pleasure because I it, partly it was to try and get over my fear. I was mm. I was really scared by ghost stories. So come on, be a big boy about it. Go and investigate it. Get a handle on it. What's real? What's not? What's a load of rubbish? Where's the truth in it? Where's the history in the story? Has it got a history? Is, is there a haunted history? Yeah. So. It's always been with me. So when I had finished at university and I, and I was at a military museum in Norfolk, it was most haunted was 
I don't think it was even on terrestrial TV. It was on something crazy like UK Living as a subscription or satellite thing. Yeah. Uh, but one of the museum crew was watching it and enjoyed it. And I said, well, why don't we contact them? Because the museum was certainly experiencing uh, paranormal activity. So it was great to have them along. But then a few years later, when Help My House is Haunted started, they were they always try and find a different historian wherever they go. And they, they'd just come across one of my Grim Almanacs. And I, I got to know the team there. And we just clicked. And it's not just wonderful Jane and Barry. And in, in the first series, it was that I worked with them, it was Chris Fleming, but but also with Ian Lawman. And we have a moustache off, Ian Lorman and I. That's why he's. I was going to say, is there, is, there a bit of, is there a bit of contest between who's got the best moustache out of the two of you? Because he's, he's got the twizzle going on with the moustache as well, hasn't he? So I could bet. Dead right. Dead right. It's, it's, and I, it was, when I got to know Jane, she was very new to the series and, and we just clicked. We just, because she's just, Jane is Jane. And uh, they all are. There's no pretenses. No, no. And I was impressed with how honest that, that series is, but also the production team that you don't see or the ones you glimpse on the fringes of the shots, uh, particularly director Ben. What a lovely, lovely man. And he's a Norfolk man too. Uh, we even, I, I played for North Walsham Rugby. He played for Dan, Dan Disway as well. So there's a, an awful lot of links a lot of kind of team spirit and so every series since i've helped them with research and that, but because every episode you've got to have a different historian i only appear on one episode per series but believe you me the the spirit of neil's story is often with them uh, and, and, and and you know what a lovely lovely tea, team it is it's a pleasure and they respect history you know they don't make stories fit and how Ian Lawman knows so, some of those stories I've dug up, they're really obscure. They're not in my books. You know, they've said, we're going here. Can you tell us about that? I just do the research and I, I just don't know. The man, the man's clearly uh, got a gift. They, uh, we talk. Yes. You know, if I'm, if I'm on set, but I don't tell him anything. He doesn't know anything until, you know, Jane and I, we will be at a separate location. We do the shoot and then they go and do their, Ian doesn't know. So it, um, so it is, so it is as it is, as it's seen on TV. He doesn't yeah. get any info and it is literally, it's fed back to him after he does his walk around and after they've yeah. done the investigation, which yeah. is great. Um You know, and with, you're, you're talking about the research, Um, you know, when you're asked to, you know, look at a case and go and find out. We said, what goes into that? What kind of things do you, you know, what, where do you get your information from? Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's a combination. I mean, I've got archives going back 40 years, near enough, you know, uh, yeah. that I've been collecting about murders, anomalous things. You see, ladies and gentlemen, not every newspaper is on the internet yet. When I started, I had to sit my bum bum down in a library and go through a whirly thing like that. Are they screen? Is it the ones that just wish the screens up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I had to do that to do my research. Uh, 
people take so much for granted now and there's still newspapers that are not online so i've got microfilm copies i've got right. hard copies i've got scrapbooks a host of material plus the online searches of course and it's it's a wonderful i love it i love the challenge of can you imagine this somebody says to you you're a, you're a historian you're a paranormal researcher we've got a haunted house great but it's a 1970s house on a pretty standard estate and they're we're haunted as hell where do you go for that one so you've got to look at the land you've got to where where, where what does that house stand on what yeah. was there before what are the legends of that area then that's where it starts to get interesting and not so long ago one of the research researchers on help my house is haunted she said look we throw you all sorts they said how do you how do you do it well i said well look i think we all believe to a certain degree in ghosts or a sense of place haunting there, there are reasons why hauntings take place and it's yeah. often because something dramatic or horrible has happened there so it's not surprising if you start digging back in a genuinely haunted property that lo and behold something quite dramatic and awful has happened there wow it's just amazing because you know you, you pick up the history and then when you watch on tv you get like the parts that you've played in it and turn the history of what they found but in a way um ian's already uncovered some of the stuff that you've already said and it's just great and where you've confirmed the way that he doesn't get anything is oh, absolutely amazing how he put i mean the celebrity edition which which is out on discovery plus that'll be coming out on terrestrial soon i mean it, it, it's an incredible incredible story where you find this case of murder where two women are it's a horrible murder on a property nearby it wasn't on the actual house where it took place but the haunting connects to these women to that dark dark story to the death of a baby and yeah i know which one you're on about and, and ian's that. walked in and, and he's hearing the cries of a baby he's here no it could have been anything and he's hearing mm -hmm. the voice the spirits of these women they're, they're in contact with them they've got a trigger object and i took i took a razor blade that was quite fun walking into a pub with a razor blade in my pocket to meet jane <laughs> <laughs> oh i did check with her before i said jane I'm going to be producing a blade. Do you have a blade phobia? And we're lucky enough to know each other beyond the show now. We correspond via the old Facebook and stuff. But I didn't want to sort of say, oh, look at this, Jay. But we were in a very, very quiet area. And she, she's just great. I, I consider it, a, it's a privilege to work with such talented and lovely, lovely people. And I'm, I really, really mean that. It is a privilege to work with them. And I think it comes through that the, the integrity of these shows with the people who watch it, you know, I, I think that you can, if, if, if anybody ever meets Ian Lawman or Jane or Barry, they, they all are the people you see on TV. You know? Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, Sarah had the 
great. We we had Barry Guy on the podcast, uh, Sarah and, and um, our teammate Jojo. And they couldn't believe the person that the way he is on screen, he is that person. And what was lovely about Barry is that even though he was quite busy, he was happy to stay on and have a chat with him afterwards, like just a, you know, like a general chat. And it, it yeah. was um, absolutely great. He he is what he is on TV. He is a nice guy, um, which was um, great. But going back to you, um, so with things coming up, you know, with you know, with things going on with you, I know one of the things that is coming up for you in September is the Festival of the Unexplained. Hey, which <laughs> you were a guest speaker last year, um, and you're actually returning as a guest speaker this year. Um, so. And there's some great guests, as you can see from the lineup on the screen there, everyone. Um, you know, what can you tell us a little bit about what you've got planned for this year's speak that you're going to be Absolutely. doing? Absolutely. Well, you know, when, when when he's in the UK, it's very difficult to keep dear old Dave Schrader and I apart. It's like <laughs> splitting up a, a couple of good buddies. Uh, he's a magical guy. If you've ever seen the holes of files, uh, it, it, he is the real deal. He, I, I love the guy a bit. He gave my, me my big break in America. So it's going to be great to have Dave in the UK. It's, it's lovely. Penny Griffiths, Morgan, Daniel class, Rob Thompson. I mean, all great friends, Lo lovely, lovely people. So it's a privilege to be there again. Uh, this year I shall be, I wrote a book called the blackout murders. It's about homicide in world war two. One of the darkest tales of all that, that that's fascinated me for years, it's known as the Lower Quinton Witchcraft Murder. Now, strictly speaking, where the murder took place, it was actually Upper Quinton. This is in Warwickshire. But the focus of the story is in this lovely rural village. If you imagine it's timber frames, it's thatch beautiful idyllic chocolate box cover a man called charles walton he's been a widower for a lot of years his niece is his kind of housekeeper he's in his 70s and on st valentine's day in 1945 just you know months before the end of the second world war when his niece got the old boy's dinner ready he's not home no he was an old boy, a creature of habit. He would always be home. There must have been something wrong. So she goes into the field. He used to do little odd jobs in the farm where he'd worked for most of his life. They couldn't find him. And so as the sun was setting and people were drawing their blackout curtains, even at that time, they found the farmer. Where's, where's he working? Come and show us. And they found Charlie, corner of the field. Was laying down and clothes were in disarray and Charlie had been pinned to the ground with his pitchfork that he'd been used for hedging through the neck wow and then the, the handle of the pitchfork long handle had been bent back and, and tucked in the hedgerow so it absolutely pulled his head hedge back they then got hold of his head sl hedge slashing tool and slashed his throat. So it was wide open. Old boy didn't stand a chance. 
it was horrific but locals start to talk and they knew long compton not a million miles away from there there was a book on warwickshire that had been written turn of the century very popular book on a lot of people's shelves mm. talked about how they just and it's a bit of folk knowledge like in transylvania they all know how to stake a, a vampire out there they all know how to kill a witch in this part of rural warwickshire and you have to stab her with a pitchfork long compton a woman was stabbed in the leg with a pitchfork and it killed her now the man that did that he got he was put down for murder but he got sent away because he was just judged as insane but the story lingered and the 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 story that got magnified about Charlie, maybe a few people had talked about him over the years. They thought that maybe he was a bit of a witch. And that the story that got around was that he'd cursed the land. That's what was put about. Whether that was true or not, we don't know. It's certainly been enlarged over the years. So the local police, they couldn't find any, any real leads, you know, that, the rumours were out there. There was talk of cattle had died and the, the crops haven't been that good. And old Charlie, he was meant to be charming toads and talking to birds. And what's all that about? And locals were starting to shut doors, say, well, he's been dead a month. He's gone buried. Didn't seem to be too much concern about who his killer was. So Scotland Yard was brought in. Now, the greatest Scotland Yard detective, the most famous of his, of his day, was Robert... Known to most as Bob in the job, Fabian. Fabian of the Yard. There was even a TV series called Fabian of the Yard. But the one case, even Fabian of the Yard could not solve was the Quinton Witchcraft murder. People started shutting doors on him. It was as if the whole village just clammed up and didn't want to know. And if you go to Quinton now, there's a, unless you've gotten in with the locals... They don't. They don't want to know. They they say things like, "Oh, everybody involved, they're all dead now." Even Charlie Walton's grave doesn't have a headstone on it. They are very very sensitive about this murder, even today. And I think that's a that's a that's a terrible thing because his murderer got away with it. And I think in my investigations, I didn't uncover it personally. One of the <clears throat> wonderful crime historians of the nineteen seventies. Uh, was Richard Whittington Egan. And if you love your old books, he wrote things like that. He was the editor of the Weekend Book of Ghosts and Horror, which was one of my early inspirations. He wrote so well. He was really good, a true gentleman. And uh, Richard had the chance to interview Bob Fabian. And he asked the question. Now, Bob, in those days was worried about libel and pointing the finger at the person he believed was the killer of Charles Walton. Wow. Well, time's marched on, and as they say in Lower Quinton, they're all dead now. So I name that person in my book. I'm not the first. Others have mooted him around, but I think <laughs> I've found one or two extra little bits of evidence that are quite compelling that suggests even more that this uh, individual, this man, is the murderer of Charlie Walton. 
Wow. And that's going to be amazing to hear you speak about that at the, because I actually get to go this year. Last year on the oh. show. So, <laughs> so Sarah wanted to go back this year. So we, we're going to be there and I'm really looking forward to your, your, um, I'm looking forward to seeing everyone, to be honest. Um, Absolutely right. You know, it's, it's going to be really exciting. Um, and then as we said, we're going to have a couple of cheeky whiskeys and show people how dance works on the dance floor. There, there could be, with, with my brand new hip fully recovered by that time, uh, and there could be a few dance-offs going on, to say the least. That's what You'll I'm saying. You'll be doing somersaults. You'll be doing somersaults. I, I'm, I'm not going to over-promise and under-deliver. That's not going to happen, all right? I, I, I think what will end up happening, we'll just sit in the corner with a couple of whiskeys and just enjoy the moment and just watch there, there will be the dance. But no somersaults. Okay. <laughs> well, I look forward to it. We'll have a dance off. Um, just to quickly mention hi Scott. Um, hi guys from Ghost Trackers UK. Thank you for joining. Um, so yeah, it's gonna be great to see you in action at the Festival of the Unexplained. Um, apart from that, what else do you have going on? Are there any other projects that you're um there, there might be a project involving you? Yes, I believe there is. Um that you've been very, very good. Because we, we've been keeping this very much under our hats. We can't say too much about it, but inspired by my friend Dave Schrader and his team in America, revisiting the holes of files. Well, I've found quite a lot of files mm. of you relating to UK UFO investigations in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Now, these are not top secret government files, that, although uh, some of these men were uh, ex military and some of them were compiled during World War II by serving members of the armed forces. But there were quite a lot of UFO research groups in the 1950s, 60s, 70s. And so I'm reinvestigating some of their cases and some of their sightings. And some people know all about this. Oh, we know all about those. And that's fine. But for many people, one of the greatest UFO portals of England has been almost forgotten. And Nando and the gang. We're going to go and uh, have a little bit of investigation over in Warminster. See what we can see. Yes, we're, we're, we're looking forward to that. And there's a lot, you know, <laughs> lots to look forward to, you know, and we're excited to be able to do some work with you. You know, that's going to be amazing to, you know, um, you know, in a way, tag along and, you know, have some fun with you and see what, what happens. Um, we're so going to make really a team exciting, yeah and you know we're gonna we're gonna it's gonna be fun i can see us having a real good time um and then what we we've already discussed what we've discussed after everything has been done and neil can we're going to do a follow-up show to talk about what we've done together and you know what the outcome of it all something to really look forward to in the future guys you know and we're really Absolutely. excited to you know we were honored when when you asked us to, you know join you on this Oh. project so well, feel up to that and well what what really touched know, me about the, the stories oh well thank you but the point was you see you, you saw that this this sort of ufo phenomena 
of the 1950s, 60s and into the 70s, it, these were really the first, we've got lots of paranormal groups now, but the, that was a phenomenon in its day was the UFO research groups. And, and it would be nice to yeah. recapture some of that atmosphere. It wasn't solo people. Of course, you always get people on their own, but people getting together to share the road trip, to share the journey, the excitement of finding the right place. And, and thanks to these lovely reports and witness statements and, and works by authors like people like Arthur Shuttlewood, who was the local reporter in Warminster back in the day. It's well charted where these locations were. They're still, still accessible. And to be able to stand on those same spots and we shall see what we will see because I've never been. You've, you've never been. It's not far from you. We've, ne we've never been know. either. And th some of the stories that you told us, we've never actually heard of because after we spoke on the phone, me and Sarah, we sat in front of the TV and we Googled it, we YouTubed it, and we started listening to the stories and started writing notes, you know, so we sort of can understand. So, yeah, like we said, um, absolutely looking forward to doing that with you. Um, it's going to be great. Um, Kim's just put a note in there. Me and the team will be there too. So I think Kim's going to be at the festival of the unexplained so that'll be great oh um, kim you're more than welcome my darling it'd be lovely to see you anytime or uh, oh that would be brilliant absolutely brilliant uh, jenny's just put i'm so jealous i'm booking a flight now so <laughs> it'd be lovely to um, see you her. jenny um and she's just said absolutely fantastic show as always thank you jen it means a lot um you. you know Neil, it's been a pleasure for me to get to speak to you you know and find out you know the history side of things oh. you know thank you for sharing what you've got coming up as well um, you're a lovely man Nando. Uh, thank you um as mentioned though if you do want to see neil um at the festival of the unexplained i do believe there's some day tickets um still available and all the other guests that they've got lined up we got they've got a great um weekend planned um you know head over to um festival of the unexplained.co.uk or you can find them on facebook great team karen Rachel, um, Nikki, Nikki. Uh, they've got a great team. So Gemma. definitely, yeah, uh, definitely get in touch um, if you want to attend. Um, it's by what I was told last year was an absolute hit, and this year is going to be even better because, as we said, me and Neil are going to do a dance off. So let's see who who wins. Um, but we look forward to seeing your book come out on sale. You know, guys, um, as Neil said. Do head if you're interested, have yeah. a look at his new book coming out. Um, yeah. and again, look out for us in the future because I'm sure we're gonna do a follow-up with Neil, especially with the be great. Uh, the work that we're looking at doing. But yeah. for now, I just want to thank you so much, Neil, for being part of the show. Um, so soon after your hip replacement as well. I <laughs> you know it was funny, guys. I me and Neil have been talking over the last few days, um, last week, and I was like, Neil, how are you doing? do this you know we were just talking in general like friends and we were saying about taking it easy and I said do you think that you'll be happy once you're all sorted you know come back on the show and have a chat with me and he was like yeah how's next week for you and I'll be honest I didn't expect you to be next week because I know you're still recovering so I just want to you know I really am you know honored that you would come on so quickly after oh, I it's part um, of my recovery I've got to take it steady though I'll probably be asleep most of tomorrow now <laughs> <laughs> um, Bill's just said I hope you stream the dance off 
Damn right. Damn right. And the after party bubble tub, you know, with Rob Thompson. Yeah. You and me, Nando. <laughs> we're there. Job done. That's it. That's if I can still walk. That's, that's mano on mano. <laughs> um, <laughs> brilliant. But um, thank you so much for joining us, uh, Neil. Um, thank you for everyone that's joined in and welcome Neil to the show and got involved. You know, it's been absolutely great to talk to you again. And I'm sure we're going to have a lot more to talk about going forward, you know, seeing you and doing some stuff with you. Um, but for now, I'll let you go. Um, have a great rest of your evening and we'll be in touch real soon. But thank you, Neil, again for being part of the show tonight. Lovely to be with you. Love to all. And thank you to everybody that sent me such kind messages and prayers to help me heal so well. Bless you all. Thank you, my friends. See you later, Neil. Good night. We'll speak to you in a bit. Uh, what a great show, everyone. Um, again, thank you um, for joining in. Uh, Neil, absolutely great guy to speak to. Lots of fun. Um, if you do want to check out Neil, there's a lot of um, interviews that he's taken part on on YouTube. Um, so definitely go over there and check that out. Um, just a bit about Portal to the Paranormal. Um, so just let you know, Portal to the Paranormal have our um, investigation on the 6th of May. Um, that is part of the Global Ghost Hunt. So as a lot of you may have seen, we have signed up to be part of Global Ghost Hunt. It is a um, global event over 14 days in May where there's going to be teams from around the world that are going to be streaming their live investigations. Um, as mentioned, we will be um, doing ours on the 6th of May at Magistrate Hall. Um, so definitely go over to Global Ghost Hunt and check that out with all the other teams. Um, we have our main event for everyone in the UK, if they want to join, we're going back to Fort Whitley um, at the end of May. Um, as always, you can check out our website, uh, www.portaltotheparanormal.co.uk. If you want to come and join and investigate the tunnels with us in Portsmouth, please do. Um, but for now, I oh, one more thing I will mention. Next Monday, we have another show prepared. Uh, we have the lads from the Patrol Paranormal, Rob and Rob, will be joining me uh, next week. So do join us for that as well. But again, I just want to thank everyone for joining in. Enjoy the rest of your evening, and we will see you soon. But for now, bye, everyone.